podcast and YouTube blog covering the German startup scene with news, interviews, and live events. Hey guys, this is Joe from StartupRadio.io. I do have a short announcement. I have now an upcoming very awesome interview with Finn. He is the winner of Entrepreneur of the Year Award by the German Startup Association, German Startup Awards 2021. We have been talking quite a bit, so the recording time is stretching over 40 minutes. If you're getting ready to listen to this interview, get a snack, get a beverage, and enjoy it. Hey, Finn, how you doing? Good. The summer is slowly starting in Germany. Um, I'm vaccinated by now, so what could go, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, not everybody is seeing this as a video podcast, but we can show short sleeves. It's summer here. <laughs> summer, exactly. Slowly but surely. Yes, and uh, you won the award for Entrepreneur of the Year? Yeah. Yeah, and we, of course, will dive into what you have to say, and I do assume it will be a lot. Before we do that, guys, make sure to hit the like and subscribe button and leave us a lovely comment. Um, also about my short sleeves, if you really need to. Um, we have, I have been researching you a little bit, and as always, everybody can find down here in the show notes the links. And I've, I've read, um, in, one of the many, many blog posts about you that you started out when you've been 17 with a secondhand online sports clothing shop. Secondhand24.de. We may add for everybody who's not from Germany that it used to be a very big thing um, in Germany to have a store open longer hours because in Germany uh, opening hours were restricted, for example, for groceries like afternoon Saturday, like 1 p.m., 1300, 1400, 2 p.m., and then they were closed and you could get something to eat only in restaurants afterwards. And if you need to go shopping, uh, you had to wait until Monday. So all of the online shops had some, some version of 24 in it. <laughs> 24, move 24, there's enough examples. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, and that, and that's one of the backgrounds. That's, uh, why always people are asking me, why does it have to be 24? Do we have a different time zone here in Germany? Do you have 25 hour days or what is it? That's the background, guys. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this and how it actually started? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was already a very active, I wouldn't want to say child, but maybe we let's call it an active teenager. And I was pretty early in my life. I was sure that I want to do something with terms of in terms of management, business, operations. And <clears throat> for a long time, I was actually looking at what's going on. And I saw a lot of people back in the days in my school not being really interested in all those things. And then at some point, one of my really close friends, he said to me at some point, look, there's this Internet thing. Let's do something around it. Like, let's see what you can do online. Let's see what's possible. And let's start something that's easy to implement. And then let's see if it's uh, if it's really taking off. And uh, during that time, we basically brainstormed a lot. I think I was probably 16 or 17. Um, I was actually back in the day an HTML developer myself. So I was actually even a freelancer working for agencies, programming HTML sites, which is kind of sad because um, today I'm not able to do that anymore. But uh, I have been really an early adopter on programming. 
Um, and uh, during that time, I was programming the website, um, and we actually decided to even like print a lot of flyers that we handed out. And we started with sportsecondhand24.de. And what we actually did there, we wanted to acquire used sports goods and then sell them on the website. And ourselves, we wanted to get a commission from that. So it was basically already in 1999, um, something that is very close to what eBay is still doing today. Um, so back in the days, we were really wondering, can that be successful? Are really people selling and buying stuff online? So obviously it was uh, back in the days, very far from being uh, the new normal. It was something that was completely new and unheard of. And we did it approximately for two years and we had some traction. So we had a lot of people buying and selling goods on the website. But it then at some point, eBay became bigger and bigger. And at some point, we realized we don't really have a chance to to do and compete against the big American companies with that. So we sold it to a local sports company, um, like a, a sports retail store, um, very quickly, I think one or two years afterwards. But still, it was my first experience where I really had to go to the government. I had to register my own company. I had to basically do my first tax report. I had to um, actually start planning to a business plan. And therefore, I think even though it was only a very small gig and not really big uh, financials behind it, it was still something that taught me a lot in terms of what do I have to do when I start a business, like from opening up a bank account, as I said, incorporating a company, going to the notary, making sure the company has money, business planning to see how, how long the money will last, how much marketing can we do, how do we become profitable. And I think these things with 16 years old to do this for the first time, it really teaches you a lot already for, for the later years to come. Totally true. Totally true. We may add a notary is something you don't know in all the like legal frameworks. Go down here in the show notes. There will be a Wikipedia article for it. Um, uh, what I found fascinating about you, then you still started out, uh, at BCG. There is a story behind it, how you got this job, right? It was with, uh, it was related to uh, some kind of entrepreneurship competition. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean, back in the days, L'Oreal, which is still one of the biggest consumer goods companies in the world, um, they had an online game. And that online game was called L'Oreal eStrat, so eStrategy. And again, it was very digital. We did that, I would say, in the last third of my university studies. We were a group of four people. And what we basically had to do, we were competing with 30,000 teams globally, um, how to run a basically cosmetic company online. So. And it was, it was basically based on several rounds. So it was almost like a virtual case study or a digital case study where you see how much revenues you're doing. You are theoretically the new manager. You have to come in. You have to make decisions based on, on numbers, but also based on gut feelings and based on branding. And then each round, um, the surviving group halved. So it means 30,000 teams started in, uh, in, in, in the first round. Then there were only 15,000 left in the second round, then only 7,500 left in the third round, until it was really down at some point to only 500 teams. Those 500 teams were in the so-called pre-final, so we had to actually submit a business plan, we had to submit a lot of different things, um, we had to submit our final decisions, and then only 10 teams were invited to the global final, um, which was in Paris, because obviously it was a L'Oreal game, and they had the headquarters in Paris. And then we uh, had to pitch our business plan to a jury. <clears throat> and the jury was 
I would say there was one guy from McKinsey, there was one guy from BCG, there were a few guys from L'Oreal, there were a few retailers. So we had to pitch the business plan to those retailers and the winner um, got a job offer from L'Oreal. So um, it was always for me um, almost a sure thing that I would start at L'Oreal. I had a few job offers from other consumer goods companies, but one person in the jury, he was the guy from BCG. Um, and then when we won this um, award, there was a ceremony at the end and there was, you know, this meet and greet and you drink a bit of champagne uh, in these pre-corona times <clears throat> when this was still possible. And then at some point I was talking to the BCG guy and the BCG person, he was a partner in the French system, um, came to me and said, look, Finn, um, everyone has to do the decision at some point in his life. Either you will start working at L'Oreal right now and you will probably do this for the next five years then you will only know one brand in one country with one problem. And this is definitely something exciting. But if you would start at BCG, you will see 15 different companies in the next years. You will see hundreds of different problems. You will see different brands. You will see different business models, different challenges. And that night, he really hooked me. And then I thought, like, I really like L'Oreal as a company, but I was more excited um, to everything I might learn at BCG at some point. And that was the moment when I changed my mind. And I told him even like, uh, I think not even two days later, said, Jacques, uh, please consider me for an application at BCG. And that's how I, at the end, changed my mind last minute to not do consumer goods, but rather moved uh, into a job at BCG. And this job, from my understanding, got you to uh, doing an MBA. We also spent some time in New Zealand and then somehow you ended up in Australia. Yep. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I did my MBA. Um, I spent a lot of time, I mean, like in Hungary and New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand is an amazing country, by the way. And during my time in New Zealand, I really fell in love with everything that's down under, like New Zealand culture, Australian culture. I went back to Germany then at some point and continued to be at BCG. But what then happened was that at some point, uh, BCG asked me if I also want to do my PhD. And at BCG, you have the choice. You can either take a year off to do a PhD or you can want to two years off to go into a different country. And I had the luck to be part of a so-called global ambassador program that you needed, that I need to apply for internally. And in this um, ambassador program, I could pick a country that I want to um, work in uh, within BCG. And because I had so fond memories of my MBA time at, uh, or my, my uh, university time at, uh, in New Zealand, I very quickly decided that I want to go back to Australia <clears throat> because I've always spent my time in New Zealand and very few time only in Australia. So I decided that I want to do that. And that's actually when I moved from Berlin full time as a BCG consultant to Sydney, which was also my biggest career progress because I was an associate and I became consultant and I became project leader. And then after that time, I really was considering what do I want to do next? Do I want to stay a consultant? Do I want to work in a company? Do I want to be a founder of my own business? And I was always, since bought Secondhand 24, I was always intrigued by founding my own company because I always loved to create and build things and do everything around it. And then when I was really in the middle of that process, wondering, do I go back to Germany? Do I go into a different country? Do I stay in Australia? Suddenly, Oliver Zamba, back in the days, um, very well known as the founder of Rocket Internet, He actually heard that I'm not so happy at BCG anymore. And he contacted me and asked me, Finn, could you imagine creating a new company for Rocket Internet? And in the beginning, I said no, and I wasn't really sure. Then he offered me a job at Zalando in Berlin. But then I thought Zalando is already such a big company. It's not really the startup vibe anymore. 
Then I had the chance to join Groupon in Australia, and Groupon, you know, is the discount um, platform. I was not really keen and fond of the business model in the beginning. And at some point, um, the Zamba brothers told me, look, um, if you like fashion, but you want to stay in Australia, what about you open a fashion company in Australia? And that was when we founded the Iconic. Um, and that is, I think, to be honest, if I look back, probably my biggest step in my career progression, because before that, I was a project leader at BCG, which was a great job, but you always advise people, you never do things. And then suddenly I became the founder of a company that was already from day one, very well financed by Rocket Internet. And I really had everything I needed to make the biggest fashion company in Australia out of that. And that was really exciting. And that's why I spent most of my professional career, if I look back, um, outside Germany, actually in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I heard uh, about those calls. I read about it. J- j- just one one question about that. Uh, what was the university that made you want to go to Australia, New, Ze- New Zealand, that we give give them a mental high five? <laughs> it was the University of Auckland, actually. Oh, you mean the university in Germany that let me go to them? No, no, the University of Auckland. Totally right. Yeah. Um, and you helped to build the iconic uh, fashion retailer in Australia. Yeah. And what what then made you leave? Because then you became the CEO of... Um, then you came, became the CEO of Epic Companies. It's an accelerator program by Pro7 Sat1, a yeah. TV company that our frequent audience already knows. They're big uh, in investing in startups and e-commerce. What, what was the moment you changed your mind? Why did you leave? Yeah, you know, um, you always have to keep in mind that I was not only um, the managing director and founder of the Iconic for, for two and a half years. I was already in Australia with BCG about two and a half years before. And my point was really, I was already in Australia for five years. And at some point, I was also wondering myself, what do I want to do with myself? Do I want to go back to Europe? Do I want to stay in Australia? Do I really want to become a part of the Australian startup world? And then at some point, I realized, <clears throat> first of all, I think the internal factors, there was already back in the days a clear movement that Rocket Internet tried to combine all the global fashion companies into one. So... Um, before that, I founded the Iconic in Australia. There was someone else who founded Dafici in Brazil, which is, is the Brazilian um, um, online fashion company of Rocket Internet. Then there was uh, Zalora in Southeast Asia, uh, which is the Southeast Asian um, fashion company of Rocket Internet. And in the beginning, all of those companies were completely independent from each other. So you had completely creativity and independency um, in your local markets. And one of the things that happened after two and a half years was that you really saw that Rocket Internet tried to combine all those companies and lift more and more synergies. And one thing that I felt already in the beginning was that the countries become less and less independent. So everything we could decide in the beginning, like uh, what kind of advertising we want to do, what kind of website technology we want to use, what kind of marketing spend we want to do, suddenly became more and more central. And that was probably the internal reason why I at some point decided that I want to leave the Iconic. But the more, far more important was for me the external reasons. I was already in Australia for five years. I missed Europe. I missed my friends. I missed my family. And I thought like I'm missing out on so many things in Europe that for me, the time has really come to, to, to come back. And as you can imagine, I mean, Australia is 30 hours flights away. I did the flights quite frequently, but 
if, for example, your family is sick or your parents are sick, it's not just a weekend. You you quickly go back to visit them and then go back to Australia. And at some point, I made the decision for myself based on those external and internal factors that for me, I really want to go back. And during that time, um, uh, Marto Perich, which is a good friend of mine, who was also MD of Rocket Internet in Southeast Asia, he already had a deal with ProSieben that Eins, as you mentioned, the big TV conglomerate from Germany, to create an incubator, which was a bit modeled after Rocket Internet within the ProSieben that Eins network. Um, and he wanted to um, uh, win me as a co-managing director um, together with him and uh, two other managing directors. And at that point, I really decided I really want to leave Australia at some point. I don't know when, but then suddenly I had this opportunity in Germany and then everything came together and I decided for myself, um, I really want to go back. And that's when I talked to Rocket Internet. I explained to Zamba Brothers that I actually want to go back to Europe. And they also gave me a job offer for Rocket Internet. But then I decided I really want to also change my perspective a bit. And I found it very exciting to create something from scratch for Proceedings at Eins. And that's when we started Epic Companies. And that was an own history, like very interesting because you still might know, some of you might know companies like Amore Lee which is an online love toys company that has been part of Epic Companies or Gemondo, which is an online fitness studio. So we invested and created in a lot of company companies during that time. And that was actually also a very interesting career, career move, move that was a lot of fun. Actually. Mm -hmm. And um, then you moved on to maybe the toughest part of your life from what I've read. Uh, you became part of the leadership team of Movinga. For everybody who did not follow our startup news, at this time there was a big competition between all the platforms where you could basically arrange to move house. Yeah, There was Movinga, there was something like Movago, there was Move24 and all those uh, things. And actually at the time you moved into Movinga, uh, they weren't working quite well and you had to um, basically was turnaround this uh, situation. Yeah. So that was interesting part. That was probably one of the most interesting parts of my career. Not the most fun parts, I would say, but the most interesting one. Um, so when I left ProSiebenSat1, um, originally I left because I wanted to found something myself. So I was screening a lot of ideas. I already had something that I was working on during that time. As you probably have read, I founded my own craft beer brewery during that time, which was kind of parallel because um, that was something that I still um, had in me from Australia that I was always wondering why other countries are so much more innovative in terms of beer than we as the mother country of, of beer in Germany. So, um, But after I actually did a lot of screening, I had my own idea and I already hit investors. And then suddenly my old investors from uh, Iconic, like Rocket Internet, but also some other people that were involved in Rocket in the beginning, approached me and said, look, we have this amazing um, investment here in Berlin. It's an online moving platform. It's super innovative. It's definitely the next big thing coming from Berlin. Uh, the only downside is we have very two very junior and young founders who might be a bit naive. They don't have a lot of experience in building up businesses. So what we really need is like a third, more senior managing director who has already seen that, done that before, who has a lot of experience and who knows how to actually run a business. And in the beginning, I thought, wow, that's an amazing growth case. I can come on board. I can bring my experience and we would all three together run this company for the next years and really make it successful. However, as you already um, indicated, unfortunately, when I started, things didn't turn out as positive as I envisioned them to be. 
So very quickly, uh, we figured out that the numbers are not as good as they seem to be. We saw actually that the company had a lot of deeper problems um, and it all cumulated to the, to the reality that the burn rate, so the monthly loss the company is doing or the, the monthly cash burn or cash outflow um, is far higher than first of all was anticipated, but secondly also reported. That had a lot of different reasons, but uh, suddenly the company within not even six weeks became from like the new superstar on the Berlin or European startup uh, horizon. It suddenly became really a problem child. And obviously it was too big to fail. The investors already gave a lot of money into that company. They already um, convinced a lot of people to invest there as well. And obviously um, there was a certain degree of panic because um, people just invested very freshly in that in that company and suddenly the company was already running out of money, not only a few months later. And that was suddenly like a huge crisis in which the founders both left the business. And then it was basically my choice to decide if I want to stay in the business and try to turn it around and, uh, and restructure it and clean it. Or if I would have done the same path like the founders and decided to leave the company. And it was not an easy decision because at the end of the day, it was not my company. I didn't found it. I didn't know the company during that time well enough to really understand what the problems were. However, I then really decided um, because I really felt the duty that I that I owe the company something um, <clears throat> and that I actually still and I really believe that is that it's in the core, it's a very good business model. I think everything will get digitalized at some point and, there, uh, and uh, also moves will be digitalized. And I mean, to be honest, I don't see a future where people still book their moves via telephone or, or, or physical meeting, I think at the end, everything will be digitalized. And that's the reason why I had a very, very deep belief in the business model. And that was because that was then the reason why I decided that I want to stay on board. And then that I offered the investors that I can restructure and turn around the business. Um, as you can imagine, as I already indicated, I didn't know everything by the time I decided that. So I saw a lot of skeletons in the closet, as you say. I found a lot of things that I wasn't aware of at all um, that went wrong in the company. So instead of like what my um, vision was back in the days to take six months and restructure the company and everything will be good, it took like probably the better of three years to really restructure the company and bring it back to where it is today. And um, for four years in total, then I was really like spending my time and my life energy to really save a company that I didn't found myself. But that was really, I think, one of the I don't want to say the low points because the low points mean I didn't like the time. From a learning experience, it was probably one of the most amazing times I had in my life. But, you know, um, it was not always pleasant. So the company was very close to bankruptcy at least three to four times during my time there. It was always about cutting costs. It was about convincing new investors to come on board. It was about down rounds. It was about um, managing complexities and problems. And then at the end, after four years in total, I really realized that with the latest financing round that then happened, um, that the company is now at a good stage. And that was a point when I decided for myself that I'm not needed anymore. And I would rather live, give hand over to someone who comes on board with a fresh pair, pair of eyes, who actually goes back into a more growth centered modus. But I realized I can't do this anymore. And I don't want to say I was burned out, but I really believe that after four years restructuring, I was not the right guy. My energy level was not high enough and my enthusiasm was not high enough anymore to really also do the next four years in that company. Before we get into your current startup sanity group, let us 
quickly talk about the most important thing you ever did, the craft beer company. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was I was checking uh, your company website. It's called Berliner Berg, and you have some very interesting um, beer there. Uh, since I spent some time in Africa, I totally do see that the world needs more banana beer, and I cannot find <laughs> it on your website. You talked about innovation, right? Uh, plus, what I've uh, personally experienced, what I like very much is something like Eisbock or Schneebock. Admittedly, very hard to produce. Everybody who'd like to learn more, go down here, uh, wherever you're listening to this or watching this, there'll be a link to Wikipedia articles. A lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, should I say a bit, should I tell you a bit about the brewery? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was an interesting thought because I mentioned already I was in Australia um, for a long time. Then I came to ProSieben um, to build up the Epic Companies Incubator. In parallel, one of my uh, co-MDs at ProSieben, Uli, he was a long time with Rocket Internet in, in the USA. So we had a kind of similar story. We built up companies. He was more on the HelloFresh side. I'm more on the Zalando fashion side. Uh, so we spent both a lot of time overseas before we both came back to Germany for ProSieben. And one thing that we discussed back in the days quite frequently was the topic that um, um, that all other countries around Germany becoming more and more innovative when it comes to beer. And Germany, as the mother country of beer, didn't really become innovative. Even today, and today it's much better than five years ago, but even today, if you go to a local supermarket, the average range of beers you have is, yes, you have a lot of different brands, but when it comes to the different types of beer, 95% of the portfolio or assortment of every supermarket are still Pilsner, Weizen, and Helles. Um, and that's basically all you can get. Um, and you have the same 100 brands who you always had in Germany. But I can tell you, and I'm completely convinced about it, and we had a very funny YouTube video that we did for our crowdfunding in Berliner Berg. If you do a blind tasting with German Pilsners, I promise you, you will not taste the difference. If I put a Warsteiner next to a Kombacher, next to a Bindinglager, next to a Radeberger, um, and I do you the, let you the blind, blind tasting, uh, hands down, you will not taste the difference. Why? Because the German breweries for decades now were only optimizing on drinkability, which means you can drink a lot about it without every, actually having a negative taste, and they were optimizing the cost, so it means the lesser hop you put in there, the cheaper the beer becomes. The lesser mouth you put in there, the cheaper the beer becomes. And then at the end of the day, this leads to the fact that all the Pilsner beers you have today, except for a few like Jever or Flensburger Pilsner, have very low level of hops. So that means all the beers taste the same. And our mission was from the beginning that we want to bring back the same beer variety back to Germany that now all the other countries in Australia or the US or everywhere else in the world are rediscovering is that we also want to bring that variety back to Germany. That's when Uli and I sat together one evening and decided, look, <clears throat> if we both leave Epic Companies, no matter what we do next, one project we should definitely do, and that is building our own brewery. And that's actually what we've done. And it started as a hobby project that we just did on the side. And then suddenly uh, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. Then Jägermeister, the big German drinks company, invested in the company now we built our own brewing facility here in Berlin, like a huge brewery house in south of Berlin. So whenever you are in Berlin, you can come by and actually enjoy our beer garden. So, and that is actually something that today I'm not the managing director anymore, but I'm still the founder and one of the biggest shareholders. 
However, obviously that's something like that was a, definitely a project that was one of the most fun projects I ever did. Yes, and of course there'll be a, a lot of links down here. What is Malt? What is Hop? Um, I, I think most Germans will know, but outside of Germany, most people won't know. And actually, when you talked about craft beer, that's something I have seen like increasing presence of beers when i'm in the us i'm most of the time in new york and when i've been there i saw an increasing presence of beers for example like brooklyn lager um that have been there um like craft beers more and more and more and i thought huh you don't see that in germany why <laughs> and i think it's it's the same thought process uh i didn't have i didn't have the idea or like the real intention to actually own a brewery but i've seen the same development um talking about development now we know the start the low points the fun points and now we can get into sanity group what you guys are dealing in uh cannabis but my understanding is, is <laughs> sorry yeah Dealing is the right term here. <laughs> yeah. Um, my understanding is you're not necessarily uh, working exclusively on distributing medical cannabis because it's you can get it on prescription here in Germany. It's legal. Down here in the show notes, there will be a lot more in information, but you're working with some of the products you can get out of it, like squeezing out oil for magical and beauty products and all that stuff. Is that true? Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, before we probably start with that, I need to <clears throat> tell a few things about the cannabis plant itself, because many people are not aware of what's what's happening and why cannabis is suddenly such a big thing. So as everything in medical today, um, cannabis has a long history. So for 3000 years, Already medical people in back in China 3,000 years ago or in, in ancient Egypt used cannabis as a, as a plant for actually increasing your well-being. Um, so it's not something that came up over the last 10 or 20 years. It's really something that already has a long-standing history. Then obviously from 1930 to more or less today, we had what we call the so-called prohibition. So the plant as a total was not only forbidden to consume, but also forbidden to do research about. And only about 20, 30 years ago, um, the first countries opened up again to do research. And one of the main countries here is Israel. And they really had a lot of breakthrough um, research results already in the 90s. And what was the main research breakthrough that they found out is that cannabis is not just one ingredient, which we normally call THC, which is the one that makes you high, the one that makes you a bit dizzy, and the typical thing that you associate with cannabis as a drug. But in total, the cannabis plant has 110 ingredients, um, the so-called cannabinoids. And THC, which is the one that makes you high and is psychoactive, is only one cannabinoid, but there are 109 other cannabinoids. So what happened over the last 30 years when the prohibition became less powerful, more and more countries started allowing research around cannabis And what you see is that the amount of research and clinical studies done in cannabis over the last 30 years almost doubled each year. And now this year, I think it's a record with more than, I think, 400 studies done in parallel about cannabis. And what is super interesting is that cannabis can be very powerful as a medication. Um, there are, we're talking mainly about THC. So, for example, chronic pain. So if you are a chronic pain patient or you have, for example, um, you have um, attention deficit syndrome 
or if you, for example, have a loss of appetite, like cannabis as a medication can really help you. However, what also became clearer in research is that all the other ingredients of the cannabis plant, let's call it, for example, CBD, which is the second most researched ingredient, is not psychoactive, so it doesn't make you high, it doesn't allow you, um, or it doesn't make you kind of like dizzy, but it's just a normal active ingredient similar to caffeine or something else, and that this stuff can also do good stuff for you. So your sleep might get better, um, your regeneration of the sports might get better because of the anti-inflammatory effects, and so on and so far. And what we said with Sandy Group from the beginning is that we want to lift the full potential of the plant. And definitely one side of the potential is the pure medical application, which is today still mainly THC for things like chronic pain, but also um, DHS um, and other indications that are more prescription based. But you also have a lot of things, for example, CBD, CBG, CBN, CBD, so other ingredients of the plant that can help people in other topics like sleeping, um, having less stress, muscle regeneration that are not necessarily medical. And that is something that we do on the side. So we have basically two business units. Number one, the medical business units focusing on prescription. And then on the other hand, we have everything which is non-prescription. And that is basically everything what we call well-being. And well-being is mainly focusing on the cannabinoids outside THC. So that is actually in a, in a few, hopefully a few words, few enough, uh, what we do and why the cannabis plant is not the cannabis plant, but rather a bit more complex than that. Before we talk a little bit about your plans there with, uh, with Sanity Group, when do we going to see a beer from Berliner back with cannabinoids? It's already happened. <laughs> we basically had it as a special edition, I would say, about a year ago now. Um, so we had like a special IPA where we didn't even use hops, where we used all like we used a little bit of hops, but we used cannabis instead of hops. And what also many people don't know is that hops and cannabis is the same family of plants. That's the reason why um, cannabis-based beers is nothing that is a new invention. Already there's tracks of monks who did it in monasteries already back in the 16th century to brew beer from cannabis um, because uh, they didn't have hops or they believed in the, in the medical impact of cannabis. So cannabis beer is really nothing new. It's not a new invention. And it makes perfect sense because if you sometimes, for example, open up a certain beer and you smell it, sometimes when you know how cannabis smells, you have this kind of association. And the reason is not um, because there's cannabis in the beer, but it's really because hops and cannabis are really, really, really close to each other when it comes to the family of plants. And that's the reason why we did it last year for the first time. It was a huge success. It's not part of our daily business, but, you know, as a kind of um, fun limited edition at some point with a special collaboration, it's obviously a lot of fun to do that. And that's the reason why we did it already last year. So if we do the next round, uh, Joe, I'll definitely send you some over so you can try them at home. I would be totally up for something like Icebox Christmas beer or something. That's just awesome. Love love it when it gets a little dark earlier outside and all the snow and that favorite time is Christmas. Um, bottom line, what we learned from your discussion, already the monks in the 16th century knew to have how to have a blast. Okay, I get Absolutely. it. Um, <laughs> yeah, now, now tell me, um, you raised with a sanity group funding of 20 million euros, should be something like 22, 23 million US dollars. Yeah. Um, one of the largest in the cannabis scene, as, as we talked about, not dealing exclusively in the medical cannabis. Um, And um, 
what are you guys going to do with that? Because I saw one of your statements in the press, like talking about building a European champion. Yeah. So, I mean, our aim was always to become the leading European cannabis company. <clears throat> and when I talk about leading, I don't necessarily mean the biggest or the largest by revenues, but also leading the way in research and development. As I mentioned already, um, yes, there's a lot of research done in cannabis these days. However, we believe there's a not, lot more that needs to be done. And a large proportion of the money that we raised will go into scientific research um, and developing new dosage forms based on that. So, for example, at the moment, we're looking into certain um, finished pharmaceuticals that might help you with schizophrenia or that might help you with, uh, uh, with dementia, like if you get older and you forget things. Um, also something that might help you against borderline syndrome. Um, and this is really something where we believe cannabis can play a big role. However, there's not much research done about it yet. Uh, there's only preclinical trials who are showing that there could be an impact. And what we want to do is really invest the money um, into finding out more about that, into proving that, into showing that there can be efficient ph uh, can, uh, pharmaceuticals based on cannabis. And then obviously also something um, that we invest into is not only the research facility, but also the production facility. And that is something that unfortunately costs a lot of money, but we believe it's worth it because We don't believe that we just want to profit from an existing market, but we want to increase and build the market ourselves and we'll do our part in building the market. And that's the reason why we invest into uh, topics that are not may generate revenues next year, but rather in the next five years or 10 years, because we believe we are just at the beginning of understanding of how the plan can be really used to, to achieve good for people. Mm -hmm. That is pretty awesome. We are now recording for more than 37 minutes, which is running longer than our average interviews, but nonetheless, I'm totally enjoying this interview. I would have two more questions for you because you're privately investing, uh, with an entity called Mauerkatze, Wallcat. Uh, when we talked before, um, it reminded you of a cat sitting on a wall, um, when you grew up. Um, what are you actually looking for? in companies when you invest with this entity? It's a very good question because <clears throat> I wouldn't say I necessarily always focus on just one industry or just one sector. I'm pretty sector agnostic. Um, I think personally, I have a good gut feeling of what works with a customer and what not and how to achieve a good product market fit. And that's the reason why, for example, I prim primarily focus on everything that's B2C. So because I understand B2B, but it's not my stronghold, what I really understand is branding, user experience, um, product market fit, how customers react to things, and how to build up things efficiently. And I would say everything that I understand um, from that perspective is something that's for me interesting to invest. So for example, very early, I invested in a competitor of Gorillas which is like uh, an online um, uh, online delivery platform for daily goods. Um, so they are now number three after Gorillas and Flink in Germany. It's called Grovi. Um, then there's also uh, another topic, which is women's health, uh, where I strongly believe that this is a topic that will play a huge role over the next 10 years. So I actually think that the, the, the women's health sector in general is underserved today. So again, it's a B2C topic. It's close to pharma, where I'm obviously, thanks to uh, Sandy Group, I'm very familiar in anyways. So these are the topics that I like to invest in. 
but generally i'm also open to topics when actually some founders tell me that they that they think i can be a great help and i like the business model i'm sometimes also very opportunistic and say like yeah let's do it i like to invest because i believe i can add some value here so to put it in a in a nutshell i really think b2c is more where i think i can add value but besides that whenever i think it's a good business model and i believe that the founders are good which is one of the main criteria for me to have a good founding team then I'm looking into it. And then the founders believe that I could add a lot of value as a business angel. Then normally I invest, but I don't have a typical pattern to identify and rank and put criteria in before I invest. Mm. We just passed the 40 minutes recording, but I still like it. And there's just one more final question. If a new entrepreneur in his early 20s just graduated with a bachelor comes to you uh, and asks you for your biggest advice as an entrepreneur, what would it be and why? To be honest, do something that you love. Um, I was always, and to be honest, I know that there's a lot of people who disagree, but at least it always worked for me. I always got more motivation out of what I'm doing if I'm passionate about what I'm doing. So um, I really believe in the value of the plant, which is the reason why I think I'm a very good founder match for Sanity Group. The same, actually, as you could imagine with beer. I love beer. I drank beer my whole life. I come from Flensburg, northern Germany. Um, Flensburger Pilsner is something that I grew up with. So obviously, that's a topic that I really enjoy. Um, and to be honest, that's also where I get my creativity from, because I always think founders also need to be creative. Um, and you always have more creativity when you do something you love um, than when you do something that you were just placed in to do. And uh, that, for example, um, I saw so many times that founders were doing something. I saw founders doing fintech companies, but they don't like fintech. They don't like numbers, but they still think, oh, fintech is such a big business model. Uh, I need to do something in fintech. And I don't want to say it always fails, but I also saw it a lot of times failing when you really see that people don't do what they like. And they become frustrated, they lose their motivation. So uh, to make a long story short, my advice is really do what you love and the rest will come from it. Well, I haven't heard any better closing words the whole year. Thank you very much, Finn. Again, congratulations to your German Startup Awards um, trophy. And best of luck for you and Sanity Group and, of course, Berliner Bergbier. Thank you so much, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.io, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.io podcast or check for the StartupRad.io internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.io skill as well.